if you are kind of excited about being part of the disruption game, by definition, someone is being disrupted. And so oftentimes the people you've identified as your customer are actually the legacy companies you should be disrupting. So have a think about who you've identified as your customer. Have a think about their business model. Have a think about the inefficiency and waste that's inherent in that model. Have a think about the kind of people that work at those companies, the kind of risk aversion they have, the kind of financial incentives they work from, the kind of incrementalism that's probably settled into their industry. And ask yourself, are they truly going to change their approach to solve the kind of problems you see in the world? If you're the kind of person I'm describing where you're heart of hearts, you want to change a customer experience and you want to disrupt an industry, chances are that is not going to happen. And worse, chances are another company, a well-funded Silicon Valley company is going to come along and not just disrupt them, but disrupt you as well. And so it's an important uh, choice to make at the beginning of your business journey. You're listening to the Startup Podcast a show focused on helping you build, run, and invest in Silicon Valley-style startups. Whether you're an investor, founder, or operator in a startup, you'll gain insights on the principles that power high-growth disruption the way Facebook, Google, and Uber do it. The conversation starts now. Hi, I'm Yaniv, a software engineer, operator, coach, advisor, investor, and people geek. I have worked at Google and a number of scale-ups and am now co-founder at Circular, a high-growth startup. Hey, I'm Chris. I've been building products and startups for over 20 years, including 10 years in venture-backed companies in Silicon Valley. I'm now helping a small handful of startups avoid landmines and dead ends to fast forward to the best high growth outcomes through one-on-one -on -one advisory engagements. And our job on this show is to guide you through the unique mindset and approach that drives Silicon Valley style disruption at scale. In this episode, I'm gonna go on a little bit of a rant, in particular about B2B versus B2C business models and how it's likely the companies you're actually selling to and supporting are the ones you should really be disrupting and maybe even killing. Okay, Chris, that sounds exciting. Jump in and tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. Let's imagine Reed Hastings, the founder of Netflix, upon having the insight that renting DVDs is really painful and walking into a blockbuster and running into limited inventory is just a, a bad idea. Imagine if upon having that insight, he built a piece of software that helped Blockbuster run a different kind of DVD rental business yep. and then went to Blockbuster and to other movie rental chains and tried to convince them, hey, if you use my kind of CRM software, you'll be able to run this whole other rental model that is much better and more user-friendly. Another great example is imagine Travis and Garrett in Paris having this insight that there's a bunch of pain and friction in ordering a taxi. And so instead of building Uber, they went to all the taxi companies and said, hey, we have a better dispatch and routing system and we're gonna give you a mobile app and users will be able to track the taxi as it's coming to them. And they went and tried to sell that to the taxi companies. And then the last example I'll give you because it's more subtle is imagine that the guys who sounded Instagram, they had this insight that brands should interact with customers in a more authentic way and they should publish more photos more regularly and apply filters and get some interest around them. Even maybe that the users could be able to follow those brands and, and maybe comment on those photos. And so they built a kind of embeddable widget for all those brands as websites or an SDK for all those brands, mobile apps. 
yeah. and they went via brands. In all those cases, the, the business would have missed building an incredible user experience, an incredible new business model, an incredible go-to-market strategy, and would have completely invalidated the core value of the tool they were building and the insight that they had around network effects and owning the customer and upselling and cross-selling and building a new multi-billion dollar company. And instead they would have built a SaaS product or a developer product for legacy businesses. And here's the real clencher. Those legacy businesses typically would not have known how to digest, implement and deliver that product. And even if they did, they would not have achieved the success of those other companies because they would have had fundamental business model and network effect problems when each of those individual companies would have delivered their own kind of broken version of the same thing. Okay. So what it sounds to me when I hear you use those examples is it's really about owning the consumer experience. And when you talked about B2B there, it's actually a specific type of B2B, which is what's often called white labeling, right? Where you're worried about not being able to distribute the product yourself. And so you say, I'm going to find these existing rails and basically build a tool and hope that those existing businesses that have their existing distribution can make effective use of that tool. And so to me, it comes from the sense of owning a consumer relationship, building a brand actually is a lot of work. It's scary. And so these businesses are thinking we can take a shortcut, get our product into the hands of consumers by going through people's existing relationships rather than having to go through that effort of building our own brand, our own distribution. I would say white label is a piece of this. And it, actually it's the most egregious part of this because what it means typically is a company has built a B2C product and then someone has convinced them to white label it. And that is actually the worst because you're now running two business models and it's a complete nightmare. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why that's a bad idea, but really it goes much deeper than that. In some cases, companies don't even attempt to build the B2C product. They actually are building a B2B tool. They're building the CRM software, the developer widget for photos, and they give up on the B2C piece of it before they even begin. And so what I'm really talking about is startups outside of Silicon Valley being more willing to chase what's called full stack disruption, where you own the end user, you own the brand building, you own the go to market, you own the experience you're trying to deliver, and you own soup to nuts, the implications and the inspiration in your head to change some aspect of the way people interact with the world. And you're right about some of your diagnoses about why people do this. They do it because they see a scarcity of demand in their market. For example, Australia has a very small user base, 20 million people. That's kind of the size of California. They do it because there's a scarcity of capital. It's often seen as a capital intensive way to go. It's scarcity of experience. A lot of uh, the market here and outside of Silicon Valley is about building business tools versus consumer experiences. It's a fear around revenue because of that lack of capital. And people seem to feel like if I build a business tool, I have a faster path to revenue and a clearer business model. And it's fears around go to market. They feel like, hey, if we go to businesses, they already have those users. And so that's an easier distribution strategy for me to go and change the lives of some of those users. 
Yeah. Well, let me be the devil's advocate. Like those fears sound pretty reasonable. And if you're trying to build a successful business, why would you want to boil the ocean when you can take a well-defined problem, build a solution to that and have a much greater chance of success? So if you have all of these fears and you say, well, okay, why should I build this full stack disruption? That seems like there's a lot more opportunity to fail. The degree of difficulty is much higher. So why, why am I not just being smart by pursuing this strategy? I think for two reasons. The first is that safety and security you're feeling is a mirage. It's a little bit like the mirage you feel when you don't want to quit your job because of job security. It's a little bit like the mirage you feel about general assessment of risk when really the risk is that you wasted your life instead of pursued your dreams and executed on the things you have in your mind. So this mirage convinces you that it's easier to achieve your goal of improving a user's life or changing the world in some way by going through legacy businesses who are wrought with indecision and innovators dilemma. And what ends up happening is you either fail to change the world in the way you imagined, or you fail to win the customers that you need and you end up dying anyway. And the other reason that this is a bad idea is because as we've talked about in some of the first episodes of the podcast, startups are not traditional businesses. They're not about building safe, healthy lifestyle outcomes. Nick in the last podcast, he defined growth in a very specific way. He said hundred million ARR in 10 years. So the observation I'm making is if you want to build a business, a healthy, safe business, there are plenty of ways of going about that. And if that's your goal, you should do that. And you should build probably a B2B business or a B2B to C business. And if your ambition is to actually fix the way certain companies work and function without maybe pushing them to behave too differently or to radically change their customer experience, then I think it's perfectly appropriate for you to be building a B2B or B2C business and product. But if your ambition is to have one of those hit it out of the park, Silicon Valley style stories where you're fundamentally reshaping some aspect of the world, then B2B and B2B2C is typically not the pathway to do that. And I think that there are often founders I run into who actually have that second ambition, but believe that B2B and B2B2C is the way to get there, which will delay them enough that someone else comes and disrupts them, or at worst, just a complete dead end. Let me challenge you on that a little bit. In general, what you see is that B2B startups have an easier time of it. And one of the more evergreen areas of large startup success stories is in B2B SaaS. There's a huge amount of money in the enterprise and it's relatively easy to capture. And you get a lot of these really big outcomes from building B2B products. So. I think you're going a little bit too broad by saying B2C is where the action is and any attempt to deviate from B2C is basically curtailing your ambitions. I actually think that you're making a, a, a really valid point, but it's, it's a little bit narrower than how you just presented it then. Well, there are a lot of caveats in what I just said, right? So I said, if in your heart of hearts, you're trying to change the way end users experience the world. And you have some insight about that, a new business model, a new interaction model, a new way of doing business. And you want to deliver that in the world. 
partnering with other businesses to do that is typically a poor strategy. Let me continue the examples. Uber would not have ended up where they were if they were trying to do that for taxi. Taxi would have rejected them outright. They just would not have achieved traction. And I have run into a startup specifically. I don't want to be too, too clear here and to protect the innocent where they're actually building or trying to build a Uber style logistics business, but they're going through legacy operators. And in their heart of hearts, what they want to do is change the way this particular category of transportation works. And they're just not going to do it. These legacy operators do not want to change their business model. They do not want to change their interaction model with customers. They do not have sophisticated product managers, engineering departments, operations people. They cannot digest that change. And it's just not in their heart to build a business tool. Their heart is to build a change to the way customers travel. The same thing is true for the case of Instagram. If those guys in their heart of hearts wanted to change the way brands tell stories and post photos or the way people tell stories and post photos, if they had built a B2B2C product or a developer SDK, they would have failed at that. They would have gone down this rabbit hole of building enterprise tools and developer SDKs and photo upload handlers and holy shit. So I'm not saying you can't build a very successful, a very big B2B company. What I'm saying is pick the business model that is appropriate to the change you see in the world. Is it harder? Yes. Is it riskier? Maybe. Is it more capital intensive? Probably. But it is a failing strategy to pick the wrong business model when you are really intending to go somewhere else. And as I said earlier, the most egregious version of this is white label, Yanev, where you're kind of got your precious little resources focused on building that experience and you end up trying to sell it as a white label service. Again, you're undermining network effects. You're undermining user experience. You're creating silos of data. Again, imagine Instagram. Imagine if Nike's photos were not on the Instagram social network and they were using Instagram white label, like just a fail, just a fail. I think there's a lot of validity to that. And there are a few things I would like to unpack. The first thought that I've got here is that it is much easier to integrate backwards from having a direct relationship with the consumer back into providing business services than the other way around. A couple of examples spring to mind. One of the great dichotomies that I enjoy exploring is Amazon versus Shopify. Amazon started facing consumers directly. You go to amazon.com to do your shopping. And over time, they could leverage that to provide a variety of business services that they could plug into their brand, but they owned the end user relationship. Now Shopify, again, an incredibly successful business. I, I certainly wouldn't want to say that they picked the wrong business model, but you see now that they're trying to go in the other direction. There's the Shopify shop app and God damn, if I know what the point of that thing is, and I would be shocked if their metrics for that app were anything other than terrible. Because consumers without knowing it are interacting with Shopify probably, you know, on a weekly basis, if not more, they don't know that they're doing it as a consumer, you don't really have any relationship with Shopify. So then when suddenly they try to ram this app down your throat, you're like, what's the point of this thing? Why would I use the Shopify shop app? And the answer is I wouldn't, and I don't, and I've uninstalled that thing from my phone because all I got was a bunch of notifications. Let's, let's unpack that a little bit. You said you don't know what the point of that app is. The point of that app is that Shopify is recognizing the power 
of moving from B to B to B to C to owning that customer, driving those network effects, and not just the power for their own business, their revenue, their business model, but the power actually for their merchants, because they're able to not just provide the utility of publishing products and driving checkouts, but actually driving demand. And the other advantage of going to B2C is ultimately the people you might have helped, in this case, merchants, in other cases, brands, in other cases, maybe even taxi or blockbuster, you're in a better position to help them and sell them on your model when you come to the table with not just utility, but distribution. I completely agree with you. When I said, I don't know what the point of the Shopify app is, I'm speaking as a consumer. I totally understand why Shopify want to build the Shopify app. I just think that they have a very, very tough road to hoe there, and I doubt they will succeed at it. The, the other direction is Amazon, right? Where Amazon have been the masters of building a direct relationship with the consumer, building an incredible product to service that consumer, and then modularizing that product and making it available to other businesses. So for example, a lot of folks may be aware, but many won't be that Amazon has something called Amazon marketplace fulfilled by Amazon. If you go to amazon.com and you buy something. A lot of the things you're buying, you're not actually buying them from Amazon. You're buying them from a third-party business, but that third-party business has actually got their stock sitting in Amazon's warehouse. Amazon picks it, packages it, sends it to you. So it feels like an Amazon experience, but actually it's someone else's product. In a sense, that's sort of what Shopify did from the beginning. They allowed other people to create their stores, but they gave the consumer relationship away to all of those millions of different businesses, whereas Amazon mm. has kept that consumer relationship really tight. And, you know, while Shopify might be a big business, I bet you it's never going to be as big as Amazon because of that. Now, one thing that comes to mind, I don't know if you're familiar, there's a fantastic blog by a guy called Ben Thompson called Stratechery, uh, also has a, a podcast called The Exponent. And he's come up with this thing that he calls aggregation theory and, and talks about why technology and the internet have changed the balance of power in, in supply chains, for want of a better term. And he talks about the, the old world really being about supply aggregation. You know, the power sat with the distributors who could get supply from everywhere else. And then they'd make that available to retailers who were relatively lower power. Now with the internet, what you have is something called demand aggregation. Uh, by the way, I, I probably screwing this up a little bit, but demand aggregation is about saying that the power comes from getting many, many customers. And once you have those customers, you can basically have the negotiating leverage with your suppliers and say, I've got all these customers who want to buy. If you want access to those customers, you have to do things my way. Whereas in the past, it used to be that suppliers who said, we've got all these great products. If you want to sell the products, you have to do it our way. So there's been this real change in the balance of power that says, okay, that the implication is that you want to have that direct relationship with the customers. And then you can go backwards into having different types of relationships with suppliers, with other businesses. But if you start from the point of view of providing tools to businesses, you are forever intermediated from access to those users. And you've got this incredible uphill struggle. You know, I mentioned Shopify. You also see it happening with buy now, pay later companies at the moment, where I think the initial bubble's bursting and there's this desperate race to try to build a really direct relationship with customers where you say, I shop through the Afterpay app rather than, you know, I go to third-party retailers and, and shop through them using Afterpay. 
occasionally this works, but it takes an incredible amount of skill and incredible amount of luck to actually be able to move in that opposite direction. And so ultimately it, it's not the smart move. You just nailed it. Aggregation theory is a key part of why this is important and, and a key part of the way I talk about this typically. And it's also a key part of why some startups with this strategy are willing to lose money to acquire a user because given this new kind of aggregation theory, the user is worth a lot more than what their current lifetime value is to you for the thing you're offering at the beginning. If you're doing B2C right and you're owning the customer, you can start to cross-sell and upsell the user in a, in a way that's really quite impressive and you start to hit network effects and flywheels at scale which you don't have at lower scale. And so those first users are actually very precious and worth paying a premium for. And so the main thing I want to highlight in this episode is that people are not aware of this choice. And you mentioned white label at the beginning of this. The example you gave with Amazon is the opposite of white label. It's a Amazon is white labeling the businesses. They're not offering their tools as white label to the merchants. That's incredibly powerful. The same thing is true when you go to Instagram. You're always on Instagram, but you're on Nike's profile page. You're always on Twitter. You're always using Uber, even though each of these uh, drivers is an independent contractor. You're always on Netflix, even though Paramount or what have you might have made that movie or made that TV series. It's really powerful. And you can see Paramount and 20th Century Fox through Hulu and Peacock they're all desperately trying to get out from the thumb of Netflix and having quite a good effect at eroding their business, actually, because they've come to understand the value of that customer relationship. And it's why I think Australia and markets outside of Silicon Valley will produce a lot of Shopify scale successes, but it's rarer for them to produce a Uber or Netflix or Facebook scale success. And that's what I want for the ecosystem more broadly. And I want founders, if not to make this choice, at least to, to be aware of this choice and to be aware that certain visions or hopes or dreams or problems they see in their mind's eye require a different approach, lest they be disrupted by the, the better executing, better funded Silicon Valley alternative. And if I may briefly talk about my own startup, we nearly are taking this opposite approach where our end vision is about changing how supply chains work. We want to move from a, a linear economy to a circular economy, but how we're doing that in the early days is by building a consumer brand, because we can see if we have that brand leverage, then we can start to back that into changing how supply chains work, how distribution works. But if we started by building tools, then to your earlier point, Chris, we would have a lot of trouble ever getting anybody to change. So there's even an element of the consumer brand is leverage in itself, but it's also the proof of concept that's often needed to get other businesses to see that they need to change. And, you know, you like to talk about Uber and, you know, taxi businesses have actually lifted their game and it's, it's because of competitive pressure from Uber, but also because they're like, oh, people do like actually using an app to order a taxi. And so they've actually built some pretty reasonable apps themselves now because Uber provided them that example. But here's the thing, and I've touched on this a little bit earlier. Uber isn't an app. Uber is a fundamentally different business model to solving transportation. Taxi cannot compete with Uber. 
because taxi is supply constrained and their model of painting the cars yellow, hiring the drivers full time, using a cage and a meter for safety and tracking, they're fundamentally at odds with the actual value prop of Uber, which is ETAs and price. And so if Uber had come to taxi and said, hey, we, we have this vision for an easier user experience, likely what would have happened is they would have ended up building them an app, but they would not have delivered on the fundamentally new business model. They could not change taxi to behave in a different way. And this is part of the story that I'm trying to tell here. The other thing, as I've touched on the innovator's dilemma, if you are kind of excited about being part of the disruption game, by definition, someone is being disrupted. And so oftentimes the people you've identified as your customer are actually the legacy companies you should be disrupting. So have a think about who you've identified as your customer. Have a think about their business model. Have a think about the inefficiency and waste that's inherent in that model. Have a think about the kind of people that work at those companies, the kind of risk aversion they have, the kind of financial incentives they work from, the kind of incrementalism that's probably settled into their industry. And ask yourself, are they truly going to change their approach to solve the kind of problems you see in the world? If you're the kind of person I'm describing where you're heart of hearts, you want to change a customer experience and you want to disrupt an industry, chances are that is not going to happen. And worse, chances are another company, a well-funded Silicon Valley company is going to come along and not just disrupt them, but disrupt you as well. And so it's an important uh, choice to make at the beginning of your business journey. To be explicit about the flywheel that happens when you're in that direct-to-consumer mode, and again, this is an implication of aggregation theory, which is the more customers that you have, the more negotiating leverage you have with suppliers to onboard them to your platform. And then the more suppliers you have, the more appealing your product offering is to customers. And again, Uber is, is actually a pretty great example here. So is Amazon where you say, okay, you know, in the case of Uber, it's more drivers makes a better product for passengers, more passengers makes a more appealing platform for drivers and, and so on and so on. Uh, with Amazon, it's like more range means more customers, more customers means Amazon have more negotiating leverage to bring new suppliers onto the platform, thereby expanding their range. And that is something you only get if you own the end consumer relationship. If you go the other route that, that Chris talked about, where you partner with existing businesses, there is no flywheel there. You can still build a really strong business, but you're not taking advantage of that flywheel. And that's going to make your path a lot harder. There's another consequence of that flywheel, which is if you think about Shopify, by contrast, there is no flywheel between the merchants. So I go and buy at brand A, and then I go buy at brand B, but there is no upsell or cross-sell between those two brands. Unlike Amazon, where the more brands there are on there, the more chances there are I'm going to buy something. If you think about Instagram, they still would have, you still would have ended up with two or 3,000 brands, but there's no flywheel where when the user signs up once, they can with quick liquidity be part of a social network with notifications and following and liking. The interaction with Nike's photos 
would be severely depressed on Nike.com's photo wall as compared to Nike's profile on Instagram. And so, yes, as you're saying, you can get more Nikes onto Instagram if Instagram owns the users. You can get more users onto Nike if those users are using Instagram. So it's better for the brand, it's better for you, and it's just better for the world. Okay, well, that makes it an easy choice then. <laughs> it really does. <laughs> it's, it really, really does. The other thing I want to stress is that, you know, you talk about B2B being easier and safer. I really am skeptical about that. The sales cycle is long and hard. The demands and contractual obligations are painful. They want you to build more and more crap that helps solve their internal business processes. It, it is capital intensive in terms of hiring sales team and account management teams and support teams. It is, I think it is a mirage. I think it is deceptive that B2B is easier. I think it is easier for people from traditional businesses to understand. I think it's easier for traditional investors to invest in. I think it's easier to show some early traction with revenue, but I'm not convinced that it's actually easier to build a great business and solve a, a real problem that way. Really interesting. We spent a bunch of previous episodes talking about investors and fundraising and so on. So if you feel you're in a market where investors are more comfortable with B2B for some of the reasons that we discussed and hopefully discredited, but you feel strongly that you want to build a, a B2C brand, how do you actually go about doing that? Well, if you're in this capital constrained world, in this market constrained world, in a world where the investors are kind of fixated on or biased towards B2B, there's no other way of saying it really than you need to move, move your target market move your pitching strategy to another market, maybe to Silicon Valley, to the US, and bet on yourself. The worst thing you can do is to be deflected from your plan and from your vision and from your heart of hearts and try to fit yourself into a mold that doesn't apply to the kind of problem you're solving and the kind of business you want to build. And I want to stress again, B2B is not typically a viable pathway to B2C. It is not something you can do for just right now. I'm sure someone somewhere has threaded that needle. I'm sure someone can give me a, an example of where I'm wrong. Possibly Square. I know the Square Cash app is incredibly popular. I don't really know how they pulled that one off. I, I think the distinction there is that the Cash app is not in any way connected to the Square POS system. It's an independent kind of consumer product that they've probably spun up an entire business unit to build maintain and go to market with. And there's no pretense that these things are really connected. Also Square is run by Jack Dorsey, who's an incredibly experienced operator and founder and is flooded with capital from very sophisticated investors and operators around him. And so, yeah, I mean, you can build an entire second business there. But again, where I'm thinking about is like, you're trying to build this thing and you kind of start to try to move it towards B2C and the two are related somehow. And that doesn't really work. Yep, I agree with that. All right, mate. Well, this has been a fun episode because uh, I think we've had more disagreement or at least more debate about the topic than we usually do. Our, and it seems our audience is like begging and pleading for us to argue about something. I, I don't know that we've satisfied them with this particular episode, but we're getting closer to finding some disagreement. I actually think we weren't recording, but we disagreed about how much disagreement we'd actually had in this episode. So that's another one that you can add to the list. We did. Yeah, we should have started recording earlier. We were kind of disagreeing <laughs> about how to, how to enter this topic and like how to frame it, because it is a 
complicated and nuanced subject. And you want to be careful about not speaking too broadly, but making the point clearly. So it's a lot of fun here to unpack. And I'm sure we're going to touch on aspects of this throughout the next few episodes and talk about implications of this as we go along. So in this episode, you know, we talked about, you know, B2B is, is a perfectly fine business model. If that's what you want to build, that's what you have in your heart of hearts. If that's the problem you're trying to solve, but be careful about choosing that because of concerns about distribution, the concerns about capital, concerns about investors or advisors who are pushing you in that direction. Make sure that you identify times when your business, your problem, your vision is really better served by full stack disruption and a B2C business model and a B2C product and chase that enthusiastically. Go find the customers, go find the investors, bet on yourself, bet on the disruption that you're trying to create in the world and, and go directly for that. And so hopefully that's been helpful for some founders who are trying to think that through. And so that's it for today. Uh, as always, we'd love to engage with you as our audience. Send us a tweet. Chris is at Chris Saad. I'm at Y Bernstein. We're also active on LinkedIn. Let us know your thoughts about the episode and please subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast app.